uh, that you would, as we come to this text for the evening, show us Jesus, lift our eyes to the glory of who he is and what he has accomplished. God, give us wisdom to divide your word rightly. The spirit who inspired these things would help us understand them. God, set aside anything uh, that might distract us uh, or sway our attention, we ask. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the gospel according to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, 5. And if you've been around for the last couple weeks or maybe follow us online or anything like that, you might know that we're beginning this series in the gospel of John that is going to span the better part of 2019. I am not going to put a timetable on it because whenever I do that, we end up going like 45 weeks longer than I said that we would. So most of 2019, we will spend in the gospel of John. We're going to break it up into three parts because John basically has three parts. There's the prologue, what we'll spend these next two weeks in as we walk into the Christmas season. And then there's what's called the book of signs where John recounts the miracles of Jesus. And depending on who you talk to, there's like seven to 10 signs of Jesus's life. And then we'll move from the book of signs to what's called the book of glory, where John recounts the last week of Jesus's life. And in between, we'll take some breaks and we'll talk about some other stuff. But for the most part, next year is the gospel of John. Or maybe this is like your first time in church or your first time back to church in a while, or maybe you didn't even know that you stumbled into church, although I would think you'd have figured that out five songs in. But it probably freaks you out a little bit that we're going to be spending that much time in this one book. Like if you're in college right now, your intro to world history class, which covers like 10,000 years of civilization, doesn't even take a full year. And so why is it that we're spending that much time in this particular part of the Bible? Well, I'll say this, that, that for Christians, for the last 2,000 years, the, the gospel of John has had a, a place of really profound importance. It's been really deeply loved, not just by scholars and academics and theologians, it's been loved by average Christians who live average lives, who work ordinary jobs, these people that don't wear the collar or work in ivory tower universities. This is a book that has been deeply loved by Christians. Bruce Milne, who is a Canadian theologian, says the gospel of John can be compared to a pool that is shallow enough for a child to wade into, but deep enough to drown an elephant. Martin Luther, nearly a thousand years before him, said that if some tyrant were to take all books that we have in our Bibles, except for the book of Romans and the gospel of John and burn them, if all we had left was Romans and John, Christianity would survive. And thousands of years before him, one of the great preachers in the early church, John Chrysostom, said that John writes in this book like somebody who has just seen heaven itself. This, this is a book that is profoundly significant. It's weighty. When I first started coming to Bay Life a long time ago, they were handing out copies of the gospel of John. And they're like, are you a new Christian? You should read this. And I was like, I don't know. I grew up Episcopal. Am I even a Christian? I have no idea, but I'm going to go ahead and read this. And so I did. I read through the gospel of John when I was like in the fifth grade, sixth grade, maybe. And maybe you are a Christian and you have had your fill of John. That's the first book that everybody told you to read. When you became a Christian, you've seen John 3.16 plastered on uh, cardboard cutouts at football games for your whole life. And you're like, man, really a year in this book? Like that sounds like a nightmare. But I'll, but I'll tell you this, that no matter how many times you've read John's gospel, I promise you there's more there. 
There's more weight. There's more depth. There's more of Jesus in this book than you ever could have imagined. John's gospel is not the sort of book that you read. It's the sort of book that you live in. It's the sort of book that you spend a lifetime absorbing and being shaped by and formed by. But hey, maybe you're not a Christian. Like maybe your friend just dragged you here or your parents told you that you should check this out or you just kind of stumbled in because it was a little cold outside and you figured there would be some form of heat in this building. And you're asking yourself, why would I spend a year in this particular book? Well, I would say this, that it's important for you too, even if you're not convinced that any of this Christianity stuff is true. And here's why it's important. This book, this book is one of the most loved, revered, and widely read documents ever written by a human being, period, end of story. It has shaped the world nearly from the ground up. So even if you think that it's a bunch of crap and that none of it's true, At the very least, I want to invite you to come and see why this book has had so much influence and so much power for so long. So if we're going to spend a year in John, what is this book that's in front of us? Who wrote it? What's the point of it? So strictly speaking, John's gospel is anonymous. We call it John's gospel because that is what church history has relayed for us. But if you read through the book, nowhere does the author say, what's up? My name is John. The only thing the author really says about themselves is that they were eyewitnesses to the things that they're recording. But from the earliest period of history, we're talking 100 to 130 AD, every single copy that we have of this book says, this is the gospel according to John. Uh, And then when you read all of the early Christians, the, the people who I named my cats after, they all say that this is John, the son of Zebedee. And we know something about John, the son of Zebedee. There's a lot of different Johns in the Bible. And so people have debated which John is this, but the early Christians are fairly unanimous. This is fairly um, unanimous. This is John, the son of Zebedee, who was one of the 12 disciples. He's part of Jesus's inner circle, actually. Jesus has the 12 that walked with him, but then there's three. There's John, James, and Peter, who he takes with him up to the mountain of transfiguration. They're the people who Jesus is having these these more personal conversations with. And this has kind of been the unanimous testimony of history, that this is the person who wrote this book. But we know some things about John from the other gospels, this son of Zebedee. Uh, When Jesus calls John to be one of his disciples, he calls him along with his brother James, and he gives them both the nickname, the sons of thunder. And this is a nickname he gives to them, not because of their dad. He gives them this nickname because they both have horrible tempers. Like they're really angry. They're really argumentative. And you can see that in some of the gospels. So for example, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is in this village and he's preaching. It's the Samaritan village and nobody believes anything he says. And then John and James, the sons of thunder come to Jesus and go, we should call down fire from heaven and wipe this village out. And Jesus goes, "Uh uh-uh, that's a bad idea. We're just going to go to the next city, John. Chill out. So you may hear that and you're like, why would I listen to anything that this man has said? He sounds crazy. He's this angry, sort of argumentative, confrontational, maybe even vengeful person. Here's why I think you should listen to John's gospel, even in spite of all that. John's gospel, more than any other book in the New Testament, talks about the love of God. More than any other part of the New Testament, it is concerned with the love of God. Here's why I think that matters because somehow this angry son of thunder has gone from wanting to call fire down from heaven to thinking that the love of God is one of the most important things that you can grasp. John is not just recording some events that he happened to be an eyewitness to, but he has been 
radically changed by his encounter with Jesus. The, the John that we encounter in this gospel, um, he's grown up a lot since his angry, youthful days. He's been profoundly shaped by this encounter with Jesus. If you have grown up in the church, you've probably heard that John wrote some other books in the New Testament. You've got first, second, and third John, and then you have the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is a book that John wrote when he was on the island of Patmos. Patmos was basically an ancient prison colony. You were sent there to die. And John was sent there to die sometime between 70, 80 AD. And while he was on Patmos, he received this vision, this vision that he, in which he saw Jesus in his glory in heaven. And he saw what Jesus says are things that must soon take place. He saw the end of the world. And if you have a lot of money and want to sail to Patmos or fly to Patmos, I'm sure they've got an airport now because they're not putting people to death on Patmos anymore. Uh, you can actually see the cave that John allegedly had this vision in. I say allegedly because we don't actually know which cave it was. It's called the Holy Cave of the Apocalypse, which sounds like a heavy metal band. <laughs> but what most people don't know is that church history says John actually didn't die on Patmos. Actually, most of the early church said that John, when the emperor who exiled him died, was allowed to come back and live out the rest of his days in Ephesus, where he led the church there. And it's actually probably in Ephesus after Patmos, that John writes this gospel sometime around 90 to 95 AD. And I think that's actually significant because John is now the only person in the New Testament who has seen Jesus in his glory in heaven and also walked with Jesus on earth. Paul's seen Jesus's glory, but Paul didn't walk with Jesus. The other disciples walked with Jesus, but they didn't see the glory of Jesus in heaven. John has seen both. And this is the last thing I would say before we jump into this text for the evening. Because John is probably at the end of his life, probably 90 years old when he writes this, uh, it is very likely that he is the last living apostle. And it is unanimous among scholars, Christian or not, that John is the last gospel written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have been written. They've been circulated for 30, 40, 50 years. And John writes last. That matters because if you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you read John, you'll notice John is way different. John sounds different. John records an awful lot of stuff that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't talk about at all. And John excludes an awful lot of stuff that takes up most of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and here's why I think John did this. I don't know if you've ever been like hanging out with friends before and somebody tells a really good story and like everybody laughs at it and haha, you're so funny. What a great story. And then one of the other friends in the circle is like, I need to cash in on this cultural credibility. And they just retell the story that you just told, try and steal your thunder. And they're just hoping that everybody will laugh at their story just as much as they laughed at your story, even though you definitely told it better the first time. It's super obnoxious. It's, it's really frustrating because I just told a great story and you're trying to steal all of my laughs. John knows what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have said. John knows that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have both said it or all said it in their own unique way. There is no need for him to write down what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already written. But John also knows that there's a lot of things they haven't said. John also knows that there's a lot that they've left out and there's a lot that they may or may not have actually seen because John was part of Jesus's inner circle. And so John is writing to fill in the gaps of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you can actually see this throughout the gospel. There's all of these little hints that, that basically tells you that John assumes that you know what has been in the other gospels. So for example, John the Baptist in chapter one points to Jesus and he said, this is the person 
who I saw the spirit descend on like a dove. That's not anywhere in John's gospel, but it is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Spirit descends on Jesus in his baptism. Or you can go a little bit further into uh, the gospel of John. And, and John has this little parenthesis. He says, everything I'm about to tell you, this happened before John the Baptist was arrested. John the Baptist is arrested in the gospel of Matthew. But he assumes you've read that at this point. It's 95 AD, you get with the times. Or, I think even more compelling, when Jesus cleanses the temple, he, as people are trying to stop him because Jesus is flipping tables and sort of making a public scene, Jesus says, if you tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. He's referring to the temple of his body. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, on Jesus's trial, when all of these witnesses are brought forward, one of the witnesses says, this man said if we tore down the temple, he'd rebuild it in three days. But Jesus doesn't say that anywhere in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John records it. He goes, yeah, this is what that person was talking about. He wasn't just making it up. Jesus said it. They just didn't understand what he was saying. So John is well aware of everything that has been said about Jesus by Matthew and Mark and Luke. He knows that Mark begins the ministry of Jesus at his baptism. He knows that Matthew and Luke reach further back and they talk about Jesus's virgin birth that we talk about so often in the Christmas season. And they trace his genealogy back to Abraham, back to Adam. But he knows that to grasp the fullness of who Jesus is, we must go further back still. And with that thought in mind, he puts pen to paper and he writes this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So John starts his gospel by saying in the beginning, and this would have immediately brought to mind for his readers, something else that they'd already heard, something else that they'd already read. It would be like if I decided to make a movie and I decided to start the movie with a black screen and yellow letters scrolling up saying a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. You know, I was referencing Star Trek. So <laughs> that was like blasphemy. I'm sorry. <laughs> but you would know that, I, that I'm calling your attention back to something that's already been said. You would know that everything else that happens in this movie is kind of framed in that light. John begins by saying, in the beginning. And that should have sounded familiar to you, even as you heard Reagan read it tonight, because the text that he's referencing, Reagan read earlier in our service, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is con consciously using the language of Genesis. But he takes it in a different direction. He says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. There's no doubt for anybody reading this in sort of a scholarly world that, that who John is talking about is Jesus. But there's a question here of like, why doesn't he just say that? Why does he say in the beginning was the word rather than just saying in the beginning was Jesus? seems sort of like a veiled way to get at your point. And there's, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. He's drawing on these Old Testament images where the word of God is how God creates things. He, he's drawing on this Old Testament picture that the, the word of God brings about judgment, but the word of God also builds up and it restores. He's pulling on all these pictures, but probably the most simple and basic reason why he says that is because John knows that the best way to know somebody is through what they say. Probably a month or so ago, we came through a pretty tumultuous election season. Both sides felt like this was a really, really big deal and that this was going to shift the direction of our country. And I was 
probably a week before the election listening to NPR, and they were interviewing a candidate. I don't even remember who it was or what they were running for. But the NPR host said to the candidate, so what are you doing to make sure that, that after November 6th, you, you come out as, as the winner of this particular election? And the candidate said, well, I've got people on staff 24-7 listening to the speeches of my opponents as far back as we have records of them. And that may sound strange to you, but, but the logic behind that is that if you're listening through somebody's speeches and they've said something really terrible, that, that should concern you. Because we know that it's possible for somebody to say something uh, ignorant or, or bigoted or disrespectful that calls into question their legitimacy because we know that one of the best ways to know what a person is like is by what they say. That, that their words tell us something about who they are. And so then when John, instead of saying in the beginning was Jesus, he says in the beginning was the word, he means something radical for us because he knows that we know one another based on our words. And so when he calls Jesus the word of God, what he is saying is this, you and I, because God has spoken in the word, can know what God is like. We can know something about him, who he is, what his character is. Not because we've climbed through this sort of pile of philosophical arguments or you've mastered Aquinas' five ways towards the existence of God, but because God has spoken in his son and you can know what he is like because he has spoken. And maybe you're not a Christian here and that sounds radical to you or, or even arrogant that out of all of the religions in the world, Christianity says, we know what God is like. But if John's right, if what John says is true, it's not that we have studied harder or read more books than other religious people. It's that God has spoken in Christ and we've listened. John says more about this pre-creation reality. He says that the word was with God and that the word was God. And the English here sort of obscures the, the depths of what the Greek is saying because it's not saying that this word was with God in the same way that we're with one another in this room. We're with each other in some vague sense that we're all occupying the same general space. Uh, the Greek here actually implies sort of a relational intimacy. The word is not just with God, but the word is facing God. The word is face to face with God. It's in relationship with God. It's the sort of relationship that exists between a father and a son. That's how close the word is to God. And this is why Christians have for 2000 years affirmed this reality of the Trinity. We didn't just decide to come up with the most complicated math equation of all time. Like it wasn't people just thinking or thinking like, how can we make this more difficult for people? It was passages like this, where we see that Jesus is in some way uh, his own person and yet of the same substance with God, because John will go on and say, not only was the word with God, but the word was God and he was with God in the beginning. And out of this overflow of relationship between the father, the son and spirit creation is born. John says this, in verse three, all things were made through him. That is Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that everything was created and is sustained by Jesus? Here's why I think that is. So when I was younger, we're talking like seven or eight years old. Uh, I would like to think I was a pretty good kid. Mostly did what my parents said, but every once in a while, they would ask me to do something totally ridiculous, like clean my room or go to school or 
turn off my Nintendo 64 and talk to human beings and have interactions. And most of the time, I would do what they said. Every once in a while, the punk rock streak in Travis would come out, and I'd be like, you can't tell me what to do. Who do you think you are? And then I'd turn up my NSYNC real loud and be like, I'm not listening. NSYNC was a band back in the day, in case you were wondering. <laughs> and every once in a while, when I was being a punk rocker and my parents were fed up with my crap, they would respond to, who are you to tell me what to do with Travis? The reason why you have a Nintendo 64 is because I bought it. The reason why it turns on is because I paid the electric bill. And the reason why you're not playing Legend of Zelda, the Ocarina of Time in the rain is because I pay the mortgage. That's who I am to tell you what to do. And sometimes I'd be like, ah, I'm not listening to you. And then I'd turn up and sink even louder. But most of the time I would recognize, even as like a kid, <laughs> that I don't really have any bargaining power with someone to whom I owe my very life. Like I don't really have the ability to bargain with my parents when everything I have and everything I am has come from them. And this, I think, is why, G why John mentions all of us about Jesus. Everything that has been made was made through him. Nothing that was made was made apart from him. Like if, if you're a Christian in this room, if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, then you will find that Jesus, uh, through uh, his word and through the life of the church, calls you to do things you don't want to do. Calls you to do things that you find unpleasant. Maybe there's a relationship that you've been in for a long time that hasn't honored the Lord and Christ is calling you out of it. Uh, maybe you've been wounded by somebody who you have every right to be upset with, but Christ is calling you to offer forgiveness to that person. Maybe Christ is calling you to turn aside from one course of life that you thought you would follow all the way through to the end and he's calling you into a different course of life. And whenever the call of Christ rubs up against what we want to do, at some point or another, we all become me with my Nintendo 64 saying to Jesus, who are you to tell me what to do? And if what John is saying here is true, that everything that was made was made through him and nothing was made apart from him, then Jesus looks back at us when we say, who do you think you are and what gives you the right to ask me to do this? And Jesus says to us, the very fact of your existence depends on me continuing to will it so. That is who I am to tell you what to do. Everything has come from me. Everything exists because I continue to sustain it by the word of my power. That's who I am to tell you what to do in all of these aspects of your life that you kick back against. And that could and should in some way terrify us because what John is saying is that there is nothing in creation that is outside of the scope of Jesus's rule and reign. It all comes from him. It all belongs to him. And if all we had was this statement here in John about Jesus's sovereignty, then we may well be afraid that our lives are ruled by a tyrant. But John doesn't stop with that statement. He goes on in verse four and he says these words, in him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's not just that all things belong to Jesus and that he has the right to tell us what to do but in him is life. And that means that when, when Christ asks of us difficult things, which if, if you are not a Christian, let me just be upfront with you. It's really hard 
Like, I, I don't want anybody lying to you about the Christian life being like a walk in the park with rainbows and unicorns and butterflies. There's a lot of good, but there's a lot of difficulty. But if it's true that in Jesus is life, then even when he asks of us things that are difficult, even when he asks of us things that are painful, we can trust and rest in the fact that he does not do this to strike us down or to destroy us. He does this to raise us up into newness of life. He doesn't ask us to set aside these things that that we may love and cling to, to crush us. He asks us to do these things so that we might have life. And that claim that John makes about Jesus is profound, isn't it? In him is life. Because isn't that kind of what everybody's looking for anyways? Like if you look at the marketing that is on TV or in magazines, everything that's trying to be sold to you, it's trying to be sold to you through the lens of this will give you the good life. I flew on a lot of airplanes last month and I read all those like, like buy a new TV from this airplane magazine type stuff, which I don't know that anybody has actually bought a new TV because they read about it in the pamphlet in front of them on their Delta flight. But nobody's just like, this is a TV, it costs $1,000. That's brute information. The way that things are sold to us is in terms of how this is going to give you the life that you've always wanted. And it's sold to us that way because that's what we're all looking for. We're all looking for life, not simply existence, not simply continuing to not die, but, but we're looking for life in abundance. I wonder how you're looking for it tonight. Maybe you feel like life will truly be what it's meant to be when you're finally in a relationship. And so you seek life uh, through just desperately trying to find somebody who likes you back. Or maybe you think that you're going to find life in your career. And so you are working as hard as you can to climb that corporate ladder and make the money that you think will give you what you want. Maybe you think that life will be found by getting into grad school. And so you are desperately trying to get the best grades possible. Maybe you think life will be found by filling your time with religious activities like coming to church. But John says that the only place that life can be found is in Jesus himself. In him is life. And that life is the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So maybe tonight you're a Christian and you're wondering whether that's actually true, whether there really is life in Jesus. Maybe you're not a Christian and you got dragged here or were told to stop by and check things out. And you definitely don't think that there's life in Jesus. Maybe you've never really thought about it before. The fact of the matter is that John has enough faith for all of us. John has seen Jesus in his glory, in his vision on Patmos. He's seen Jesus in his humiliation as he's walked with him from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And John says, in light of everything that he has seen, in him is life. And he invites us in his gospel now to come and see. That's an invitation that we will heed over the next year. And I think that by the time we're done, you'll see as you look back on these early chapters of John that it was more true than you ever could have thought. In him is life and that life is the light of men. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. 
Uh, We thank you that even in spite of our sinfulness, uh, you have sent Christ, the pre-incarnate word who will take on flesh to dwell among us, uh, to raise us from death to life, to forgive us of our sins so that we might call you father. God, we pray that whatever things we're going after, thinking that they'll give us life, um, Lord, that you would redirect our gaze, that you lift our eyes to Jesus to see that there is only life to be found in him. Lord, we ask that you do all this by your spirit, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a ministry, we take communion here every week, and I'll just tell you,